Are you familiar with that really popular song? It's about how sorry they are. I'm, I'm so sorry, would you forgive me? You know that really popular song? You, you probably all know of a I'm sorry song. However old you are, whatever type of music you listen to, you probably know of an I'm sorry song because from the Beatles to Elton John to Bieber to Demi Lovato, there are so many I'm sorry songs. In fact, when I was, I had a song in mind, I'm not going to tell you which one, but I had one in mind and I was going to look up the lyrics for that. And so I just put in I'm sorry song and up popped this website, the top 25 I'm sorry songs for if you did something wrong. And so if you want, you can go find that list and you could just listen to all of these people who are sorry, except for the ones that are sorry, not sorry, right? Because... Because there's something about regret, remorse, that's such a deep emotion. You feel bad about what you did. And so whether you're on the side of um, those who have been hurt or on the side of those who have done the sin, uh, it's just this really strong emotion that just fits really well with the passion of music. And so this morning, we're looking at Psalm 51 as we work our way through the Psalms. And what we see is one of the top 25 I'm sorry songs ever, right? In the history of the world, this is one of the top. And we're going to look at this together and and consider what does this have to say to us this morning. But before we jump into that, I want to tell you this story. You see, there was this guy and... Two guys, really. Both of them had sheep. The one, the one had a lot of sheep. The one had just the one sheep. But man, he loved that sheep. It was, it was like not the kind of sheep that you would put outside and leave in the, in, out there to get cold. It was the kind of sheep that you would bring into the house. You know those, those ones that you see, the YouTube videos, where they have the sheep that's like a pet, and you think it's ridiculous? But this guy loved this sheep. He brought it into the house. He fed it from the crumbs from the table. It would sit in his lap. He'd cuddle that sheep, and the wooliness, and just, he, he loved that sheep. Meanwhile, his neighbor thought he was ridiculous, but he had all these sheep. All these sheep. And it came time uh, for the neighbor, he, he was feeling like, I, I, I really, I should, have a, I should have a barbecue. I should have people over, we should have a barbecue, it'll be great. And so he went, but you know what, I don't really, I got all these sheep, but I don't really want one of these ones. That one, he's been taking great care of that sheep. I bet that one would taste great. And so he went over and he took that sheep from his neighbor and he barbecued it. That sheep that was like a pet. That sheep that his neighbor had loved. The only sheep he had, he took that thing and he barbecued it so that he could throw a a party for his neighbors. Now, just hearing that story makes me a little unhappy. It makes me a little bit grumpy. And and if you are sitting like me where you hear this kind of a story and you that is not right. That guy should be punished for what he did. Then you are not the first person to have heard this story and think that it applies to someone else. 
You see, David, King David, committed an awful sin. He saw someone else's wife and went, she looks nice, I think I'd like her. And he went and he took her for himself. And then, because that wasn't okay, and he didn't want her husband to find out, he had her husband killed so that her husband wouldn't find out and so that he could keep her as his wife. And after he had done that, the the prophet Nathan came to him and told him the story in a similar fashion than I just told you. And David's response when he heard about this guy who had all these sheep, but took this pet sheep from his neighbor and barbecued it, David's response was just to get livid mad. And he went, that man deserves to die. And he should have to repay everything that he took ten times over. And Nathan looked at him in the eye and he said, you... You are that man. And I'll tell you, when I hear that story, I go, David, David is that man. But what I find upon further reflection is it does the same thing to me. I get mad when I hear the story. And I get mad when I hear David's story because of David's sin. And I go, how could he do that? What was he thinking? What kind of a sinner behaves like that? And then God holds up this mirror and says, you, you are that man. Your sin doesn't look exactly the same. But you are that man. And so as we come to Psalm 51, the psalm that we just sang together, this psalm, it says, uh, this is to the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So Nathan called him on his sin and and David um, hears about it is convicted of his sin and sings this song in response, writes this song in response. And my, my first tendency is to look at a psalm like this and to think, um, this is something that David did. But the way that I want us to look at this and think about this today is to think about our sin and how we respond to this kind of sin. So in Psalm uh, 51, starting in verse 1, it says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. 
He starts off by, by just saying, God, would you have mercy on me? According to your steadfast love, according to the mercy, according to your mercy, would you blot out my transgressions? David recognizes in his sin that there's nothing he can do about it. He can't make up for it. He can't atone for it. He can't pay it back. He can't fix it, repair it, minimize it, erase it. There's nothing that David can do to make this better. And so he just cries out to God and says, Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me. Why? According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. He's going, God, because of your character, because of who you are, would you forgive me? Would you have mercy on me? I know that I deserve judgment. I know that I deserve punishment. I know that I deserve your wrath, oh God. But would you have mercy on me? Not because I did what's right. Not because I did what's right most of the time. Not because I've been a pretty decent king overall. But because of your steadfast love and because of your mercy, because of your loving kindness, oh God, would you have mercy on me because of who you are? Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. You ever feel like that? You know that sin. That one that's, that's before you all the time, that you just think about all the time. It's right there. What are you going to do about that sin? How are you going to fix it? How are you going to get rid of it? How are you going to keep it from being right in your face all the time? You try and ignore it, you try to hide it, you try and move it off to the side, put it behind you, well forget it, the past is in the past. But pff, it's right there. You wake up in the morning, staring you right in the face. It's that sin that just won't erase. You typed it in, into the computer and you went, ah. Delete, delete, delete. I didn't mean to write that. I didn't mean to do that. Delete, delete, delete. Backspace, backspace, backspace. Why isn't it erasing? Why won't it go away? Select, cut. Select, highlight, delete. Reboot the computer. And it just pops up right there, right in your face. David recognizes his sin was a really big deal. And he's not trying to minimize it in any way. He just owns it and goes, God, it was me. I did it. And my sin is always before me. I am so aware of it. And there's nothing that I can do. So God, would you please have mercy on me? I know that I deserve your judgment. 
I know that I deserve your wrath and your punishment and there's nothing that I can do about it, but God, please have mercy on me because of your love for me. Please have mercy. Then he says this, he says in verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Time out. Against God only? What about Bathsheba? What about Uriah, her husband? What about Joab, the guy that David made Uriah killed by Joab, right? Put him in the front line so that he dies. He's the king. What about the nation of Israel and the example that he's setting? He says, against you, God. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He recognizes, David recognizes that even though the sin was against Else, primarily, the sin was against God. This is God's creation. These are God's laws. These are God's people. And so when David does something to hurt God's people, he's sinning before God. He's hurting someone who was made in the image of God, whose value is there because they are God's image bearer. He, as God's image bearer, is destroying the image of God, God's righteousness and holiness. As king, David should be the upholder and example and standard for justice for the nation. And he's ruined that. He's sinned against God. Yeah, he's sinned against people too. In pretty significant ways, he's done a lot of damage against people, but the most damage that he has done has been to God. For all that God has done for him. Took him from being a a little shepherd boy to being the leader of armies, to being the leader of his nation, David, the man after God's own heart. Like that, that reputation is soiled. So that when you think of David, you're probably thinking of two things. David and Goliath, David and Bathsheba. His great victory and his great defeat. His great high and his great low. And so for millennia, his sin is not only before him, but before all of God's people. Why? Because he had sinned against God. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, 
so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. God, I recognize, he says, I recognize these are your laws. These are your rules. You have set this up. You have set the world up to be this way. And you have set up this nation to be your people. And you have given us the laws that we should uh, live under. And I have broken those laws. I've broken them. So you would be completely justified in your judgments against me. He says, behold, in verse 5, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom from in the secret heart. From the, from the time he was in the womb and, and being born, there was this tendency in him towards sin. And at the same time, from the womb and from the time he was being born, there was God's message to him. This is what I expect from you. This is wisdom. This is right living. This is righteousness. So from the time he was born, there was this struggle from the very beginning of this tendency towards sin and this knowing of God's laws and what He was supposed to do and this struggle just fought with Him all the way through His life. And you know that struggle. You've been in that place. Because this is not unique to David. This is the kind of thing that is something that we all deal with from the beginning of our lives all the way through to the end, we're struggling with this knowing what the right thing is to do and yet having this sinful, fleshly nature that wants to do the wrong thing. And this constant battle of, am I going to do what God wants me to do or am I going to do what I want me to do? It's depicted in cartoons as having somebody on either shoulder whispering in your ear, oh no, don't do that. That's not the right thing to do. Oh yeah, do that. You totally want to do that. No one will notice. No one will care. Go for it. You're the king. You deserve it. No, don't do that. God wouldn't want you to do that. What are you thinking? What are you doing? Oh, I think I'm going to go for it. And then afterwards, the great remorse. The great remorse as he recognizes that that sin, that he, when it was at first identified in somebody else, when it was just that, that really rich guy taking a sheep from a poor guy, oh man, I can be mad about that kind of sin. And then it gets flipped and it's, oh no, no, you're that guy. Oh. And all of that emotion and anger at that sin over there suddenly becomes remorse and repentance in David. He owns it. He doesn't minimize it. He doesn't excuse it. He doesn't blame it on somebody else. He just acknowledges, God, from the beginning, you have been teaching me your ways, and from the beginning it has been a struggle, and so against you and you only have I sinned. So please, please, according to your mercy and according to your love, cleanse me. Make me pure. Make me clean. Verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. 
purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. That, that, this uh, hyssop branch, it was just a regular branch. I mean, we could have called it a Douglas fir branch or a willow branch or something. Except that, that this, this type of branch was used a couple of times. Once was uh, in Exodus during the Passover. This might be the one that springs most readily to mind for you. That the hyssop branch would be dipped in the lamb's blood and then um, painted on the doorposts. And then the, the, the angel of death would pass over those houses because it had been painted with the blood of the lamb. And so because of that blood of the lamb, then that angel of death would pass over and that was that was painted on there with the hyssop branch but it was also used by the priests in in leviticus they were told to to use the hyssop branch and this time to dip it in water must have been great for dipping in things but you could dip it in water and you could then sprinkle with it and so what they would do is when someone had been cured of something, some kind of disease or something, or a, a tent had been, been uh, cured of some kind of mold or something like that, then you would present it to the priests and say, look, what had been dirty, what had been gross, what had been um, unclean is now clean and pure and like it should be. And so ceremonially, they would take the hyssop branch and they would dip it in the water and they would sprinkle that thing. And it would be a a symbolic purifying or purging and saying, this thing is now clean. And so what's happening here is, is David is saying, God, please cleanse me, cleanse my heart, cleanse me from my sin and take that hyssop branch and sprinkle me so that I'm clean. Sprinkle me so that, that I'm clean, so that my, myself, wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Isn't that great? Because that's how it feels when we have that sin, that sin that's always right there in front of us. It just feels like this thing that we can't scrub out. Like the, those stains that you get on your clothes and you go, ah, and you just, you, no matter what you put on there, you can't scrub it off. And then you find something that does take it out and you go, yes, my clothes are clean again. And it looks clean. The stain is gone. And that's what he's talking about here. It's, oh, I'm going to be, it's whiter than snow. It's just so clean and pure. His sin has been washed. And, and then... What happens then, right? When you have that sin that's clean, then he says this in verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness and let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Oh, that's how that feels. Because when the, when the sin is there, when the sin is in front of you, you just, you can't hear the joy. You can't hear the gladness. All you can see, all you can feel, all you can experience is the depths of darkness. And just everything, everything seems like it's against you. Everything seems like it will not work out. Everything seems awful. There is no hope. There is no good. There is no nothing. And so David's going, please wash me, cleanse me. Make me pure again so that I can hear that joy, so that I can have that gladness again. That gladness that comes from being in your presence that right now I'm not experiencing because all I know is that I deserve your judgment and wrath. But God, if you were to cleanse me, 
If, if out of your love and out of your mercy you cleansed me, then when I came into your presence, I could again experience that joy, experience that gladness. And it would feel like I moved from having that your wrath on me, that, that bone-crushing wrath, to my bones feeling restored and feeling good in your presence again. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. How many different ways can he say this, that, that God would turn his face away from David's sin and just not see it? That he would take that eraser or some sort of thing and, and blot it out, and then the sin would be gone. Just get rid of it. Make it so it's not there anymore. Don't consider my sin. But instead, he says, verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. It's interesting, we've, we've had several different ways of him talking about his sin. His sin, his iniquity, transgressions. The, he's been talking about his sin in a few different ways. Then he talks about the cleaning, the cleansing in a few different ways. And now we have this spirit in verses 10, 11, and 12. Three different. Renew a right spirit within me. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. And uphold me with a willing spirit. He's going, instead of me having this sin that's weighing on me so heavily, take that away and instead give me your, the presence of your Spirit. Create in me a, a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And cast me not from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Oh, David knew. David knew what happens when you sin against God, especially when you're the king, you're leading God's people, and you sin. He'd seen it in Saul. And he'd seen the Holy Spirit taken from Saul. And the effects of that, as the sin just seemed to grab hold of Saul. And David's going, don't let that be me. Don't, don't do that to me, God. Turn your face away from my sin, but don't turn your face away from me. Don't take your presence from me, your Holy Spirit, the, the one who, who is here with me. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 15 through 18, it says this about the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Isn't that great? The Holy Spirit bears witness to that. The presence of the Holy Spirit bears witness to that. The Holy Spirit convicts us of, of righteousness and judgment and sin and ministers to our spirit to encourage us about the presence of God with us. That, that presence that rejects us and His wrath that is on us when we are in our sin, but when we appeal to His mercy, when we appeal to His love, we are forgiven 
And then the Holy Spirit instead is bearing witness to us. You are a child of God. You are a child of God. You are accepted by God. You are loved by God. Your sin is removed. You have been made righteous in His presence. He will never leave you or forsake you. The Holy Spirit will be with you. From now and forevermore. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. But instead, rejoice to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. God, you are able to restore to me the joy that is, comes from my salvation, the salvation from your wrath. And you are able to make my spirit willing to follow you. Then, verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Already, this is what I see happening here. David finds himself, after Nathan has um, come and accused him of his sin, David finds himself crying out to God, asking for his mercy. And making this promise, Lord, if you will, if you will restore me, then I will sing your praise. And I will sing your praise in such a way that it will bring uh, other transgressors, other, other sinners like me back to you. I will tell them about this. I will tell them about your character. I will tell them about your love. I will tell them about your mercy. I will not hide this sin, but I will, will put it out there so that others may also turn to you and experience the joy of the salvation that comes from you. So David does that. He prays that. And then afterwards, this psalm comes from that. This psalm comes from that. This psalm, David writes so that we also can follow along and go, yeah, this, I'm in this same place. I'm a sinner like David. I need this kind of a psalm. I need to repent. I need a contrite heart. I need to, to proclaim these things and not minimize or di- di- diminish or blame my sin on somebody else, but just acknowledge, oh God, I am a sinner before you. And there is nothing I can do to cleanse myself, and so would you cleanse me because of your great mercy and love. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Even in the depths, David is going, this is not, this isn't just me. Not only do I need this restoration, but others are going to need this restoration too. And I promise that I'm going to proclaim it. I'm going to put it out there for other people too. 
Do you realize the opportunity that you have after being restored from your sin, after being made right and forgiven by God? The opportunity that you have to share that with others? Because people are hurting. Their sin is in their face. And they don't know how to deal with it. They don't know what to do about it. They try and cover it up. They try to hide it. Let you know it's not there. Because they don't know what to do about it. All they know is that their sin is right there in their face and there's nothing that they can do to fix it. They'd really like to. They wish they could pay it back. They wish they could go back and not do what they just did. But it's right there and they can't do that now. It's too late. And for somebody like that, there is no hope. There's no hope. You committed that sin. You deserve the punishment. And even if they're going, yes, I know, I know. I did that sin and I deserve the punishment. Can we just punish me and then it will be over? No, no. You have to live with what you did. You can never, never make up for what you did. And it just drives people. It drives them to the depths of despair. Because what could I possibly do? And David is saying, God, God, when you restore to me the joy of my salvation, the salvation that comes only from you, the salvation that comes only because of your love and mercy and nothing that I can do, I will proclaim it to the sinners. I will proclaim it to the transgressors. I will tell everybody, this is how you are saved. This is where your hope is. This is where the joy can come from. It is when you go to the Lord and you just beg for His forgiveness. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of Your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, for my mouth will declare Your praise. For You will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, and a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. He says, I know, I know there is nothing I can do. As the king, he could have offered sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. He'd done it before. He'd offered sacrifices of praise for, for victories that he had, had had as king and for, uh, as the army leader. He'd, he'd done sacrifices to thank God for, for success out in battle. And, and he'd uh, done these sacrifices in anticipation of God's presence coming into Jerusalem. And he would even tell people, no, I, you cannot donate that sacrifice. I have to buy it from you because I will not sacrifice something that doesn't cost me anything. And here he's going, but God, ultimately I know the sacrifices are not going to pay for it. 
The sacrifices are not going to undo what I did. Ultimately, God, you don't want the sacrifices. You want me to walk in righteousness before you. And when I don't, to have a broken and contrite heart and a broken spirit. And that's where I find myself right now. Broken and contrite. Remorseful for what I have done. And oh God, you will not despise that. Again, in Hebrews chapter 10, I see a lot of parallels between Psalm 51 and Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 10, it says in verse 4, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do Your will, O God, as it is written of Me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. When Jesus came, he cried out to the Heavenly Father and he said, Look, I know you don't desire the sacrifices and offerings, but you desire that I will walk before you in obedience. So behold, he said in verse 7, I have come to do your will. And then again in verse 9, Behold, I have come to do your will. And it is by that will that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Because every person is born with this struggle between sin and righteousness and Jesus is the only one to have walked in righteousness from birth to death. He's the only one who pleased God the Father And so when He offers His sacrifice, He offers His body for us once and for all so that we receive His righteousness and He takes on our sin. That sin that, that David was going, can't, I don't know how it can be erased except by your mercy and your love. The author of Hebrews says the way that that, he, that love and mercy works is that Jesus comes as the one-time sacrifice to remove all sin. So whoever believes in Him will not perish with the death of punishment, but have eternal life with Him. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 
And every priest stands daily at at service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, those who are being made holy, those who are being made clean. Jesus did that once and it takes place forever. That's the hope that we have. That's the hope that we have. We appeal to the character of God, His loving mercy and knowing that it is um, expressed in the gift of His Son, in whom we trust. Back in, in Psalm 51, he finishes with this, Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. He says, if you have done these things, God, it is not because we offer the sacrifices that you are pleased with us, but because of your love and mercy, you have sanctified us and then can be pleased with our offerings and sacrifices. Isn't that interesting? The offerings and sacrifices do not precede God's pleasure in us. It is because God is pleased with us that we give the offerings and sacrifices and that He receives them. Not the other way around. I also think it's interesting that in verse 18, He says, Do good to Zion in your good pleasure and build up the walls of Jerusalem. You see, David understands something. He's the king. And so while his sin was primarily against God so that he can say, God, you and you only, against you only have I sinned. He understands that the consequences of his sin have had an effect on many people. And as the king, as the head of the nation, they are going to affect the nation. And so he's saying, God, would you do good to Zion in your good pleasure? Would you do good to Zion? in your good pleasure, and build up the walls of Jerusalem so that you will delight in right sacrifices and in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. David's going, I know because of my influence, because of my position, because of the effects of my sin, that not only are my sacrifices, not only do my sacrifices have the potential of being hindered, but also those of the people that I'm responsible for. I think it's a great pattern for us to follow. That when we are confronted with our sin in remorse, we come and we plead to God based on His character, understanding that it is uh, because of His love and His mercy that we are forgiven and saved. But then that we would pray also about the effects that our sin may have on other people. God, would You restore them? Would you heal them? Would you bless them? Would you help them to walk in righteousness? Because we recognize that though we aren't kings, leaders over nations, we have influence. We have people that we're responsible for and connected to and our sin spills over onto them and affects them. 
And so we pray for their restoration as well. And I want to finish with this in Hebrews 10. He says in Hebrews 10, Therefore, verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. I started by telling you a story and saying that, that this story, though we may have thought it applied to the rich man, or we may have known the story before and thought it applied to David, actually applies to us and is convicting toward us. But now I want to finish with this and say, look at Verse 22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. As you have, have been made clean and your, your sin has been removed because you confessed it to God and He forgave you, then it's, it's sprinkled so that you are clean and pure in His presence. So let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering because He who promised is faithful. Again, we can depend on the character of God. He has promised us and is faithful to fulfill it. In fact, He has already offered the gift of His Son. So that if you are struggling this morning because of your sin, I would encourage you to just bring it to God. And say, God, would you forgive me? Would you wash me clean? Because Jesus has already paid my debt on the cross. And I claim His blood. So that, Lord, His righteousness might be accredited to me. We just cry out. So that when we leave this place this morning, even after having prayed that prayer, we can sing praises to God together. And again, as David put it, we can have the joy of our salvation restored and we can hear joy and gladness once again. Let's pray. Father, we pray. We pray that You would convict us of our sin. That we might be made aware of it. That we wouldn't diminish it or blame it on someone else or excuse it. But Lord, that we would see it and acknowledge it. Father, we pray, would You convict us of our sin so that we might repent of it. And Lord, I ask that as those here today bring their sins before You, that You would hear them. 
that you would acknowledge them, that you would forgive them, that you would remove their sin from them, that you would show them that they are now pure and clean before you. That that sin which has been in front of their face for so long has been now removed because of the death of Jesus on the cross. Father, I pray that even after reading a text like this that is so convicting, so full of repentance and remorse that yet we would be able to walk out of this place full of life and full of joy because of Your love, because of Your mercy. Father, I pray that we would not stay in a place of darkness or stay in a place of depression, being downcast. But because of our hope and because Jesus has already dealt with our sin, that we can be full of joy, proclaiming, testifying, to how good You are. And so, Father, I pray that You would convict us here of our sin, that we would be uh, faithful and disciplined to repent of that and confess it and bring it before You. Then, Father, because of Your promises, You would remove it from us and fill our hearts with joy that Your Spirit would testify to our spirit that we are Your children and we are righteous in Your eyes. Father, may we have that kind of joy this morning as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.